Hi there, I'm James Dapache, and this is Coffee and a Case Note. Team, today we are going to have a chat about an application. Sorry, I've got to do it yourself macchiato, so you pour your little milk in um, to your ristretto. We're going to talk about an application by a plaintiff. And what that plaintiff is attempting to do is attempting to argue that they have a caveatable interest in relation to a property. Now, what is this all about? We are going to start with the deceased. And the deceased, as you might uh, know from the name, is someone who's eventually going to die in our little story. But let's set it up for a moment. So during their life, the deceased creates a will and the deceased creates a memorandum of wishes. And the deceased does so with their spouse. And so the deceased makes their will and then the memorandum of wishes is something that is signed by the deceased and signed by the spouse. Now in their will, what the deceased does, among a large number of other things, is bequeath their home, a property in the suburb of Darling Point in Sydney, to the spouse. And what the deceased does in the memorandum of wishes, which is a different document to the will, not the same thing, is agree with the spouse that the spouse will, in their will, go ahead and bequeath one half in equal shares of that property to the child of the deceased from an earlier marriage and the child of the deceased and the spouse from a later marriage. Let's go through that one more time. Deceased, the spouse is a second spouse. The deceased has a kid from an earlier marriage. The deceased says, I'm going to leave you my house and my will, but we're going to agree in this memorandum of wishes that you in your will are going to leave that property or any other property you might have bought and sold from those proceeds 50-50 to my kid from my earlier marriage and our kid together from our later marriage. So that is what is said in the will. Now, what happens is the deceased, as you can tell from the name, dies. And so the deceased's home and a number of other assets pass into the hands of the spouse. And so the spouse remains alive. And the spouse is the defendant in these proceedings. Now, I need to give you a bit more information at this stage about the deceased's estate. Now, the deceased's estate included um, a business operating a macadamia and cattle farm and shares along with the spouse in the company that owned the land that that macadamia and cattle farm was operated on. And this memorandum of wishes had a number of things in it and it included an acknowledgement or, or a wish, an expression from the deceased that said, hey look, um, you may need at some stage to use the proceeds of sale or some sort of financing arrangement from this Darling Point property that I've bequeathed to you in relation to the macadamia and cattle farm. And so there may come a time where you might need to uh, borrow against this property or potentially sell it and use some of the sale proceeds in a certain way. Now, let's flash forward chronologically to today's litigation. Remember we're talking about a plaintiff and the plaintiff it has lodged a caveat. And that caveat has the effect of preventing the defendant, our spouse, from dealing with this property without the consent of the caveator. Now the caveator is the child of the first marriage. So it's the deceased kid with the partner other than the surviving spouse. And what the plaintiff says is, hey, one half of this Darling Point property itself is held on trust for me. That is a caveatable interest. So that gives me a right to lodge a caveat. And so my caveat's fine. And um, further to that, there's, there's sort of an extension of this litigation whereby the plaintiff is seeking uh, relief 
consequent on that trust position being made out. Now, what we're dealing with today is the caveat. What the court does is work through the nature of the interest that the plaintiff has and work through the nature of the memorandum of wishes. Now, what the court finds, and hopefully this will make sense to you if I'm explaining it properly, is that any rights that the plaintiff, and indeed the plaintiff's half-sibling from the later marriage might have to the property, don't actually attach to the property itself. They attach to what the spouse, the surviving spouse, might bequeath on their death. And so for so long as the surviving spouse is alive, any rights that the plaintiff and the half-sibling might have to take from their estate has not yet arisen. And so there is no current or existing trust. There is what the court refers to as a bit of a floating obligation on the surviving spouse. And I should say for completeness, there's no suggesting the surviving spouse is rejecting this obligation. The evidence would appear to point to the surviving spouse saying, yeah, yeah, I agreed to bequeath um, the property or you know the outcome of its sale uh, to each of the kids. So there's no suggestion of, uh, of that not being complied with. But in essence, the court says is, plaintiff, your rights to this property or the sale proceeds of it don't arise until the surviving spouse dies, frankly. And the surviving spouse's name is surviving spouse. And for so long as it is that, there's no trust basis that arises and so no caveatable interest. What the court goes on to say is even if there were a caveatable interest, the question of convenience would be a challenge. But in order for the, uh, for the caveat to remain in place, the plaintiff uh, must, must prove that it's more convenient that it do so. Um, the uh, court is prepared to accept, based on sort of a small amount of evidence, but, but some genuine evidence, that the caveat is causing inconvenience to the surviving spouse. The nature of that inconvenience is, or includes, that the macadamia and cattle farm was affected by flooding um, that is fairly notorious to us all living in Australia at the moment, um, and that some funding that might be available from the Darling Point property would assist. There's no uh, evidence put on by the plaintiff in relation to convenience, and it's the plaintiff's onus to prove that it would be more convenient to maintain the caveat. And so the court has little trouble in saying, caveat's gone, and plaintiff, you're paying the defendant's costs. I hope that discussion discussion assisted you. And I look forward to joining you again soon for another coffee and another case note. Cheers.